Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Morningstar CEO Kanal Kapoor discusses how individuals are making investing personal. Amy Arnott fills us in on different investment styles. Jonathan Guyton from Cornerstone Wealth Advisors tells us how inflation could affect our financial plans. And Christine Benz offers a gift idea for college graduates. Let's get started. Here is Morningstar CEO Kanal Kapoor. Investors have come to expect investing to fit their personal lives and values rather than the other way around. As a result, we all have an opportunity to see services evolve and even new investment vehicles emerge to accommodate uniquely individual goals and preferences, including the use of models and direct investing. So what is a model? To many of you, you may think of a strategy but a model takes multiple strategies and put them, puts them together and delivers it to you. Most robo-advisors robo are essentially delivering a model to the end investor. And what's direct invest, indexing? Direct indexing is a personalized form of indexing where you take a base index, such as the Morningstar US market index, and you personalize it based on your own personal ESG preferences, for example. So we're seeing a real surge in these types of offerings. On our own model marketplace at Morningstar, there are now almost 1,400 models across more than 100 asset managers and strategies live in our software platform, Morningstar Direct. That's an increase of 83% in just the past seven months from around mid-2020. It's a space worth watching because we believe the demand for new vehicle types as Will, will grow because they're less expensive, more scalable, and because of the interfaces and the interactions that fintechs are allowing, there's a greater amount of personalization in the delivery of these models. So as adoption grows, investors will need transparency in this otherwise opaque investment area. How do you know if, know if one is doing better than the other, for instance? You can expect to see Morningstar analyst ratings for models soon as we're working to illuminate this part of the investing universe as well. So what I've learned now is that the industry is putting real weight behind making personalized portfolios a reality. It's no longer enough to propose great investment products. You've got to tie product proposals directly to client goals and a willingness to accept risk and outcomes. This can be the difference between disengaged investors and ones who really care what their investments are about and who are focused on long-term outcomes. On the home front, Morningstar is well known for our role in the investment product space. But I think now that we are in the U space. We've been accelerating the rollout and integration, for example, of our Finimetrica risk profiling tool, which is an asset that's powerful in that it's a suitability solution that connects client risk and goals to investment recommendations. And we find that tools like this can really help personalize that experience. There's just no doubt, in fact, that investors have new opportunities for alternative and private equity exposure as well. If you look at PitchBook, there's just a growing number of these options available. As companies stay private longer, 
and publicly traded stocks, at least until recently, have fallen in number, smaller investors have been boxed out of enjoying the gains in certain parts of the economy. There's a FOMO feeling on those kinds of growth opportunities. But the landscape is changing there too, and asset managers, such as T. Rowe Price and Fidelity, have been including pre-IPO shares in their stock portfolios for a few years now. You might be wondering why there are limitations here, but the 1933 and 1940 acts limit the ability of investment providers to pitch certain products widely, and income and wealth hurdles were instituted in 1982 that limited access to things like private equity funds, hedge funds, and things like that to just high earners or institutions. But in 2020, the definition of an accredited investor changed, allowing smaller investors to access ALS if they were being advised by someone now deemed to be accredited. Another change in 2020 was the Department of Labor declaring that it was okay for individual retirement options offered to employees to start including private equity, as long as they were guided by an expanded list of accredited investors. Many see the first inroads of private equity into 401ks as a limited portion of a target date fund, though asset managers are all looking at this and thinking about their next steps. In fact, I think I just read yesterday that KKR is looking to, to offer something in this space. Now, pe people are shaking free from the old guard's way of accessing capital. Entrepreneurs no longer need that investment bank or hedge fund for an idea to take flight. In just a week or so, new rules approved by the SEC will allow companies to raise 5 million every year by selling equity through crowdfunding. That's five times as much as is allowed now. And there will be no limit to what an accredited investor can put in. We're also seeing more uptake in flexible avenues to IPOs. Some of the largest VC-backed businesses are opting for direct listing, seeing Roblox and Coinbase Enterprise data software providers, Databricks and UiPath, both raising massive VC financing with the idea of going to direct listing possibly. Now at Morningstar, we're big believers of that. In fact, when we came public in 2005, we did an auction IPO. That year it was just Morningstar and Google that did auction IPOs. And I've always wondered why more companies have not followed that path. And I've been glad to see the direct listings. Of course, you've also probably heard of special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs, sometimes referred to as blank check companies, which have also become all the rage. There were more than 250 of them in 2020 that raised more than 75 billion. And so far this year, we've already seen 60% of that amount take flight in 2021. A lot of what's going on here boils down though, to the fact that people are maybe trying to make a quick buck and investor beware when it comes to SPACs. If you're interested in SPACs, take a look at PitchBook. We've got a lot of interesting information in there, but I will say when I look at the IPO market, I'm less excited about SPACs and definitely more excited about direct listings and auction IPOs. So what, and where do we go from here? Well, we expect that FinTechs can and will continue tackling new questions and opening new possibilities to empower investors beyond simply using frontier technologies to make all things go faster and cheaper. It's valuable, but that's not the only thing. With more investors engaging new vehicles and outcome-based processes to achieve personalized investing experiences, 
the financial industry is on a path to master the concept of knowing the investor, knowing the investor. And with the growing accessibility of a broader range of private and public investment options, fintechs are poised to curate the expanding sea of choices for a wider field of investors with tools and insights attuned to each unique context operating in real time. This leadership is imperative as individuals navigate complex environments at the intersection of investments, banking, payments, health, and yes, social media. So the growth of global fintech sits at the intersection of these waves. It's ripe for new types of investors to engage when and how they want and in ways that are unique to them and the goals that they believe will make them successful. The rapid innovation against an accelerated rate of change means more nimble contenders have very real opportunities to unseat incumbents. But the incumbents are also awake and moving as quickly as I've seen them. So with all this opportunity comes a chance for responsible leadership to protect against some of the stumbles we have seen in past periods where things have seemed so good. So as I reflect on a really strange year where a personal level with the pandemic, it was hard to feel great about things. And yet on a professional level to see all this wonderful change taking place in our industry, it reminds me that one thing hasn't changed and that is having a true north. Doing the right thing by the investor and by your stakeholders will never steer you wrong. And as you think about charting your next course, think not only about how you can build a successful business, but how you can do so in a way that connects to all your stakeholders in a sustainable and thoughtful manner. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long-term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Susan Jabinski from Morningstar Inc. and Amy Arnott from Morningstar Research Services talk portfolio diversification. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. We've seen a resurgence in value stocks and smaller companies during the past several months, leading investors to wonder how they might effectively diversify across a variety of different market caps and investment styles. Joining me today to discuss some fresh research on the topic is Amy Arnott. Amy's a portfolio strategist with Morningstar. Hi, Amy. Thank you for being here today. Thanks, Susan. It's great to be here. So you recently co-authored a paper looking at the correlations of a variety of different market capitalizations and investment styles against a broad U.S. equity portfolio. But let's start out by defining our terms. What are correlations? So we use a statistic called correlation coefficient, which measures how two different assets tend to move relative to each other. Are they always moving in the same direction, which would be a correlation of 1.0? Do they have a basically no relationship, which would be a correlation of zero, or do they move in the opposite direction, which would be a correlation of negative one? And if you're trying to reduce risk and build a diversified portfolio, lower lower correlations are usually better. But one thing to keep in mind is that the correlation coefficient only captures the direction of returns and not the magnitude. So if, if I have two investments, they might have a high correlation, but their returns could still be different. 
So let's talk a little bit about correlation specifically um, between, let's say, us, the value and growth styles and different market capitalizations versus a broad U.S. equity portfolio. How have those correlations looked historically? So when we look at investment styles, we're using the Morningstar style box grid, which divides the U.S. equity market into nine different boxes based on investment style and size. But all of those smaller groups are still part of the U.S. equity market. So it shouldn't be surprising that historically, all of the nine style box squares have had pretty high correlations with the U.S. market overall, although the small value corner can be a little bit more idiosyncratic. And then did this pattern hold in 2020's bear market too? Um, so you've probably heard the saying that all cor correlations go to one in a bear market, and that definitely held true in early 2020. We saw a spike in correlations kind of across the board early last year, and all nine of the style boxes had correlations of close to one with the overall market. And you did comment in the paper that even though correlations did all increase in the bear market, there was a, a pretty good difference in the returns of the various parts of the style box, right? Sure. So, so stocks suffered losses pretty much across the board, but some areas did hold up a little bit better than others. Um, there was definitely a flight to quality. So large growth stocks held up a bit better with an average loss of about 30% versus closer to 47% for small value. And you also noted in the paper that when you looked at the correlations across or, or compared within the style box to different styles against each other, that the correlations were lower in 2020, is that right? Right, so if you look at kind of the opposite corners of large growth and small value, the correlation was about 0.8. So that's still pretty high in absolute terms, but definitely lower than either one relative to the overall market. So let's, let's take a step back, Amy, and, and what are the takeaways for investors here when it comes to portfolio diversification by the various parts of the style box? How should they be thinking about that going forward? So I think these results really reinforce the importance of broad diversification. You know, as you mentioned, over the past few years, large growth was really a great place to be, but we have seen pretty a, a pretty dramatic reversal over the past six months or so with smaller cap stocks and value, value stocks doing much better. Um, so if you're trying to build a, a diversified portfolio, you really want to make sure that you have exposure to different areas of market and you're not too overweighted or out of balance in any specific area. Well, Amy, thank you so much for your time today and for these portfolio construction tips. We appreciate it. Thanks, Susan. Always great to talk with you. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill or visit Morningstar.com slash Alexa. Next, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. interviews Jonathan Geitzen from Cornerstone Wealth Advisors. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. We haven't seen much inflation over the past decade, but we've been recently hearing more about it. Joining me to share his perspective on what higher inflation might mean for your financial and your retirement plan is Jonathan Guyton. He's principal at Cornerstone Wealth Advisors. John, thank you so much for being here. Nice to be here. Thank you. 
Well, it's great to have you here. First of all, I'd like to get your perspective on how worried you are about inflation. And perhaps you can also share your thoughts on what you're hearing from clients about inflation, whether they're worried about inflation perhaps ticking up. Well, it's been in the news, like you said. Um, frankly, we're not all that worried right now. Um, a couple of reasons. Um, number one, it seems like the, the economy is just beginning to reflate from somewhat of a decline in prices. So um, we're keeping our eye on where price levels go relative to where they were before the pandemic began. Um, and then the second thing is it would really take this showing up in um, some sustained wage increases before this would be the kind of embedded longer term inflation that really could have some impact. One thing um, that we've been hearing is that uh, this environment is maybe sort of comparable to the financial crisis coming out of the financial crisis in 2009, 2010. There was a lot of hand wringing about inflation during that period. It didn't really materialize. Do you think that that's a good comparison or not so much? Yeah, you know, we, we, we have been supposed to have had a lot of inflation from various things over the last couple of decades. And uh, it really has never come to pass. If you look back at the Great Recession, um, a couple of things seem different. Um, first of all, the Great Recession was accompanied by the collapse in the housing market. And a lot of people's houses went underwater. There were foreclosures. It was a real shell shock to literally millions of American homeowners that seem to in, impact their spending decisions. The second thing is that the, the response by Congress, the, the Stimulus Act uh, that was passed, uh, the two of them actually that were passed back in 2009 and 10, were not anywhere as large as what was done this time. I'm not sure that Congress actually is doing better economics this time, but I think that the, the combined things of right now that we've seen in the last year um, have made it possible for spending to by and large continue, um, that people have money to do things like that. So I think that this particular time will be more effective at keeping the economy from you know, having such a long time to, resp to respond and get back to where it was. And that, of course, is what brings the question of, well, you know, have we put uh, uh, too much punch in the punch bowl and uh, made the party a little too fun? Right, right. That's the question. A related question, um, when we think about inflation and you think about your clients, do you get more worried about inflation for retired clients than you do for clients who are still working and eligible for those cost of living adjustments? Or you know, how does life stage affect how you approach factoring in inflation into the financial plan? Sure, because you're right. Um, you know, the cost of living does continue to rise uh, when you are retired. For most retirees, they fund a, a decent percentage of their ongoing core living expenses through Social Security once they get to a point where they decided to claim. And of course, that, that income is fully indexed to inflation. Um, I think uh, your colleague, David Blanchett, did some significant research on this a couple of years ago where he demonstrated that over the course of retirement, 
Um, the spending level of retirees, while it does continue to go up, it does not go up as quickly as the overall rate of inflation. So um, in a strange way, at least over the long run, um, inflation is not as big a concern in the in aggregate for retirees, but it certainly might be for, for some, for many retirees who right now are wanting to travel or they still are able to lead an active lifestyle. But by and large, it's with what we where we are right now, it shouldn't be a concern. How about healthcare expenses for retirees? You mentioned how their trajectory of spending kind of changes throughout our retirement life cycle. How does retirement spending, uh, healthcare spending, and inflation and healthcare spending affect your thinking? You're right that inflationary, uh, the healthcare inflation is higher. You know, um, if you go back, I did a little checking in preparation for our conversation. If you just look at Medicare Part B premiums, over the last five years, they've risen um, about 4% per year. Um, not always 4% every year, but that's the average. And that's about double um, what we've seen in the underlying inflation rate. So it is there. Um, but for, for most retirees who are on Medicare, where they really see a big jump is when something happens to their health and they are triggering more co-pays or a bigger use of deductibles um, rather than the, the, the inching up every year of what those costs are. We've said for our clients um, you know, pretty well on for um, the last several years that if you are planning to spend five to $600 a month, per person on your overall health care. That would be between your Medicare Part B premium, what you're doing for prescriptions, co-pays, deductibles, out-of-pocket, that that should pretty well cover you. Um, and that amount does need to go up a little bit every year. But remember, when, the, when David Blanchett did that work and said the overall level does not keep up with inflation, that is including the effect that some areas, like healthcare, may actually be rising greater than inflation. So as long as you have a good plan and you, you know where your spending is on that, you should be okay. Okay. And how about the complexion of the investment portfolio? What sorts of investments do you include in clients' portfolios? I guess thinking specifically about retired clients' portfolios to help defend against inflation. Well, when you're looking at a portfolio and you're asking it to provide you with sustainable income, the, the key is that the portfolio's overall return is high enough to support the withdrawals that you need to take out over that period of time. So in periods of moderate inflation, the typical mix works pretty well. I mean, stocks do well. They have, they have the, the highest positive real returns um, when it comes to that of returns above inflation. Um, but, but if we were to see inflation getting up into the five to six per, percent per year level, that's an environment where stocks have had difficulty. Now, it's certainly true that there are periods of time where specific inflation um, protected investments like commodities, for instance, or precious metals have really shown. Um, they've really outperformed other equities. But you have to get the timing right, um, because whenever you add more of something like that to your portfolio, you're taking something else away. You're putting less money, for instance, into U.S. equities or international equities or what have you. Um, and so unless historically those more inflation um, protector 
equities have not done as well as the equity market. So unless you get your timing right, when you go in and when you back out, you're probably going to come out on the short end of the stick with that. How about investments that might specifically defend against inflation, things like treasury, inflation-protected securities? You reference some of the more narrow inflation protectors that people might use, things like commodities. Can you talk about how you think about those positions and what sort of percentages you use in terms of allocations? Sure. Well, you did a piece uh, just uh, within the last couple of months, Christine, on this, which was really quite comprehensive. So I'm kind of just repeating some of the things that you mentioned. But um, certainly the Treasury, the the inflation protected treasuries tips, as they're known, you can buy them individually. You can buy exchange traded funds. Um, There are short term and longer term tips, just like there are shorter term and longer term treasuries. Um, So there's all kinds of tools that people can use. Historically, when we've seen higher and sustained inflation, you've gotten a little better returns from those. Remember that tips do well when when inflation expectations and inflation is rising, and they do not do well when interest rates are rising, but inflation expectations are not. So normally those two happen at the same time, but they are not always happening at the same time. So just be careful of that. In terms of percentages, it certainly would be appropriate if someone wanted to Um, allocate maybe a quarter of their fixed income holding in that direction. The other defense that that will give you is that generally it's U.S. government securities that hold up the best when equities decline in value. And if inflation heats up to the point where you get some kind of a sell-off in the stock market, it's going to be really important that your bonds hold up because you may need to draw on them um, for a period of time while you're waiting for the equities to recover. So because TIPS are US government securities, um, they should help in that regard, although they don't tend to hold up as well. For instance, a year ago when the pandemic really hit with full force, TIPS suffered, whereas the straight treasuries did not um, for at least a period of time. But that's a good place to start with that. And then, you know, like we said earlier, you can certainly choose to replace some of your other more maybe traditional equities um, with some type of a commodity ETF or even precious metals. But again, remember, that's a choice and that will either have a positive or a negative impact based on the timing that you deploy. Okay. How about the withdrawal rate? You have conducted a lot of research on withdrawal rates and you've had a lot of experience managing client portfolios with respect to withdrawal rates. So how should people think about inflation potentially impacting their withdrawal rates? If they think inflation is going to go higher, should they be more conservative with withdrawals? Can you talk about that interplay? Sure. Well, there's a lot of research that's been done, as you know. Um, around sustainability of withdrawals. And there are lots of ways that that research was done. And it all included periods of time where inflation was far higher than we've seen today. And I think it's important for retirees who are aware of that and and are essentially relying on some kind of an evidence-based approach approach to know that the evidence they are relying on took into account periods like this. Now, it's true that the higher inflation is, 
the higher the amount of money you're going to be taking out every year, unless you have some other adjustment mechanism that you're following. And so that means that you have to keep an eye on things. You have to be sure that the plan you're following is one you still have confidence in. Um, and you have to keep an eye on it to the extent of know where that withdrawal rate is. You know, a withdrawal rate can go up for two reasons. One is the amount you're taking out is going up quickly or the amount of the underlying investment pool is going down. Uh, both of those will make that percentage go up. And so, you know, by keeping an eye on that withdrawal rate in once a year is enough. It doesn't change all that much from, you know, throughout the year in general terms, but you can do it as often as you want. And our firm, um, we meet with our clients every six months and we are monitoring those withdrawal rates every three to six months. Um, so as long as you see what's going on with that, kind of the temperature of that, you can then make adjustments based on the underlying plan that you have. However, if you're, the underlying plan you're following or the method that you're using really doesn't have a good explanation for how to handle a period of higher inflation, then maybe you want to evaluate the underlying plan itself and make some changes you know, before you get into some deeper water. Okay, John, great perspective. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to do it. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. And lastly, Christine Benz shares tips about financial gifts with Susan Jabinski. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. It's graduation season, and you may wish to help new grads in your life with a financial gift. Joining me today to share some thoughts on giving financial gifts is Christine Benz, Christine's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Hi, Christine. Thanks for being here. Hi, Susan. It's great to be here. So let's start by clearing up a, a misperception that some people might have about the gift tax. You say that most people, most givers will never pay the gift tax. Walk us through it. Right. Each of us has what's called a lifetime exemption amount that encompasses gifts given during our lifetime, as well as assets that we might leave behind and plan to give to our heirs after death. So we have this lifetime exemption amount in 2021. If someone were to die in 2021, that exemption amount is over 11 million for individuals. It's 23 million for married couples. So most people are not dying with estates or giving amounts that are in excess of these thresholds. Separately, there is what's called an annual gift tax exclusion amount, and that's $15,000 in 2021. This is the thing that really trips people up, where if they're giving large gifts, they think that they may somehow trigger the gift tax. In actuality, if you happen to give a very large gift to an individual that is over that $15,000 threshold, what would happen is that you would be required to file a, a gift tax form, but you are not subject to gift tax. It merely means that you've given this large gift and it counts toward that exemption amount that I referenced earlier. So lots of confusion about this. Be generous and know that even if you are giving large amounts in a given year, you probably will never end up paying gift tax. So, Christine, the stock market has enjoyed some substantial gains over the past several years in general. Um, so some investors might think about gifting appreciated stock. What are the pros and cons of that? 
Well, a couple of uh, pros are that if you do have appreciated stock, you can really reduce risk in your portfolio, either by gifting it to individuals or to charity. So it's kind of a, a twofer that you're reducing risk by scaling back on concentrated positions and you're helping someone else. The other potential advantage to this particular strategy is that if you have these assets in a taxable account and the gift recipient happens to be in a lower tax bracket than you are, that person will pay taxes. Even if they turn around and sell those securities, they'll pay taxes at a lower rate than perhaps you would. So those are the big pluses to the strategy. If there's a disadvantage, I suppose that it's a little bit more cumbersome, a little bit more complicated than giving cash or, or writing a check. And speaking of cash, you know, what are the pros and cons of going with gifting good old fashioned cash? Well, the pro, as I said, would just be the simplicity of it. It's certainly easier for, for the recipient to receive a check and then they can direct the proceeds to whatever they choose. Another potential benefit to giving cash is if you're in the opposite situation where you have a losing stock in your portfolio, well, you could sell that stock, book the loss and use the loss to offset gains in your portfolio or even offset ordinary income. So that those are a couple of the positives. The negative would be that if you do have appreciation and many investors find themselves in, in that position where they have highly appreciated securities and the gift re recipient is in a lower tax bracket, you're not availing yourself of that opportunity to do a little bit of tax arbitrage by potentially paying taxes or having the gift recipient pay taxes at a lower rate than would be the case if you divested of the security or Yourself. Now, what about the idea of funding a Roth IRA on behalf of a child or a young adult? Is this an idea that's worth considering? I think it's a terrific idea. I love the idea of getting young people started saving for retirement early. And the really nice thing about a Roth IRA is that it's a really flexible vehicle and that those contributions can be withdrawn at any time and for any reason, which is such an attractive feature, especially with young people with multiple goals beyond retirement. The name of the game, though, is that if you're setting someone up with a Roth IRA, if you're making a, a, giving them a gift with an eye toward having them fund a Roth they need to have earned income. They need to have at least enough earned income to, to cover the amount of that contribution. If your child or grandchild or relative has been full-time in school, they may not have that earned income. So that would be a, a potential reason why you could not take advantage of it. But otherwise, it's a great strategy. And lastly, Christine, you say that, you know, when you give a financial gift, it's also a great idea to use that opportunity to give some financial advice. Um, how would you go about doing that? I love the idea of either writing down your own philosophy or some strategies that you've successfully used to set yourself up for financial success in your own life or perhaps share a favorite financial book or two, or maybe a column that really made an impact on you during your own investment career. Just get a little bit creative and think, think about some of the things that have been formulative in your own financial success. And if you're giving a financial gift, do take that extra step of imparting a little bit of wisdom along the way. Well, Christine, these are great ideas for helping sort of the next generation um, get their money house in order early and start investing. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Susan. 
I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.